Yes, good job, Ali. That was a mammoth one. Uh, it's not something we often have the luxury of, uh, listening to long chunks of scripture read like that. Um, but it's actually the way that that letter was written, uh, to be read aloud and heard like that. Uh, so I thought, since we have the time and the opportunity, it was good for us uh, to hear it uh, as John's uh, original hearers would have. So I wonder what you think uh, is a three-letter word starting with S uh, that we're not allowed to talk about. Uh, I put it to you that the answer to that question is quite different uh, now from what it would have been 30 years ago. Uh, At this time in our culture, the word that we're not allowed to talk about is sin. Uh, When I was young, we talked about sin. Uh, We weren't allowed to talk about sex. Now... Uh, we talk about sex uh, and we're not allowed to talk about sin. Why is that? Why are we as a society uh, so reluctant to talk about sin and how does that impact us uh, as a church? How does that impact us uh, as God's people? I hope that we'll begin to answer uh, some of those questions as we read and study this letter that was written to Christians almost 2,000 years ago. Sin is one of the main topics uh, that John addresses in this letter. I'm sure that you noticed that uh, as Ali read it. Uh, It's not a popular topic now, uh, and it seems like it wasn't really a popular topic then either. Uh, But the three main things that John addresses in this letter are who Jesus is, uh, the the topic of love uh, and sin. They were the three things uh, that his readers needed to hear. Uh, And as we study this letter over the next few weeks, I think we will find that they are also the things that we need to hear. Uh, It seems likely that this letter was written by John the Apostle uh, towards the end of the first century uh, and towards the end of his life. Uh, The church at that time was facing huge issues. Uh, Organised persecution from the Roman Empire, uh, heresy infiltrating the church, Uh, especially influenced by the Greek culture in which they were living, uh, and a crisis of leadership as the apostles died. John, in this particular letter, uh, focuses on the second two, on heresy uh, and on the crisis of leadership. The book of Revelation, which John also wrote, uh, particularly addresses the question of of persecution. This is a slightly unusual letter, you will have noticed, uh, as it was read, in in that it doesn't start with a greeting. There are various theories about why that is. Uh, Perhaps it had a cover letter. Uh, Perhaps the cover letter was either of the books we now know as uh, 2 John or 3 John. Uh, But it certainly seems that the recipients knew uh, who it was from, someone that uh, expressed deep love for them. So it was someone that they knew, uh, knew well, and who knew them well. Uh, and within uh, a few decades of its being written, uh, it was attributed to John the Apostle. And there's a lot of similarity between this uh, and between the book of Revelation and the Gospel of John, which attests to it being written by him. And I think those similarities, particularly with John's Gospel, are helpful to us uh, as we approach this letter. So we'll actually look at that a little bit as we go uh, as well. And at the end of John's Gospel, in chapter 20, verse 31, we read this about his purpose in writing it. 
Uh, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus recorded his account of Jesus' life, death and ministry in order that people might put their faith in him and so have eternal life. And when we come to this letter that we've just read, uh, at the end of it, in 5 verse 13, he writes this, I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God so that you may know that you may know that you have eternal life he's now writing to those who believe those who've put their trust in the messiah and so have life because he wants them to know that they have eternal life the gospel his first writing was written so that people would believe this letter was written so that those who do believe might be reminded and know with great confidence that they have life It's written to Christian people to assure them of the hope of life that's theirs. It's written by John to those that he loves and cares for to keep them on the right track, to keep them believing and trusting in Christ the Messiah so that they might have life. Karen Job says in her commentary, he wants to convince readers to continue their faith in Jesus Christ despite the disruption and confusion caused by members of the community who've left the church. It's written to people who are living in a confusing world to help them navigate it and hold on to their faith. And as we read it, my prayer is that we, who also live in a confusing world, might be helped to navigate it and to hold on to our faith. Uh, John begins his letter, as we said, in a slightly unusual uh, way. He launches straight into what he wants to say. So in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. In his opening sentence, he asserts two things, Jesus' eternal nature and the certainty that he, John, has of that. John wants to make those things very clear, the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and his own credibility as someone who has witnessed that firsthand. The word of life, of course, is a way of speaking about Jesus, the Son of God. This reminds us of the beginning of John's Gospel uh, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here in the letter, in calling Jesus the word of life, he connects what he's saying here in the gospel about the revelation of Jesus the word with the life that he brings. He goes on in verse 2 in 1 John 1 and says the life appeared. This is the word of life, the one who is eternal appearing in the flesh. John and those who are witnesses with him, the we uh, that he says in verse 1, have seen it 
uh, and testify to it. And of course, he was there and he saw Jesus in his earthly life. Uh, In the gospel, he talks about himself uh, as the one that Jesus loved. Uh, We think that's a bit weird. It's like a bragging statement. Actually, I think it's his amazement at Jesus' love for him. Uh, It's something that we'll see more of this letter goes on. But uh, So John was a witness to Jesus' life and all that he did. He was a witness to the miracles. He was a witness to what Jesus said and taught. And he was a witness to his death, resurrection uh, and ascension. And he says in verse 2 here, we have seen it and testify to it. And in verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. But John here was a witness to more than the facts. He was someone who witnessed Jesus' life, uh, but he's someone who understood the significance of it. It's more than I saw it happen. It's I saw it and I understood it, and this is what it meant. In John's Gospel, uh, he records just seven miracles, uh, fewer than any of the other Gospel writers. Each one that he records, he records because of what it signifies, of what it points to. The feeding of the 5,000 is the backdrop to Jesus' claim to be the bread of life. Uh, The healing of the blind man is how we understand what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world. And the raising of Lazarus uh, is the illustration of his claim to be the resurrection and the life. In each case, there are those who see the miracle who see the sign but don't see or hear or understand what it says about Jesus. So here in this letter, John's saying not only did he see Jesus' life and death and resurrection, plenty of people were around and saw what happened, but John saw them. He understood what what Jesus means and what that means for the people of God. So we're taking a while to get going, but back to verse 2. He says he has seen it and testifies and he proclaims eternal life. Jesus was the eternal life because he was God and was with God from the beginning, as the gospel reminds us. But back here in the letter, he says, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. Jesus' life, death and resurrection aren't just a story or even facts. They're the source of eternal life uh, for John's readers and for us. So this is how he starts his letter. With his certainty uh, of Jesus' eternity and so eternal life that can be shared by those who are in fellowship with him. In verse 4, you can probably see in your Bible that there's some uncertainty uh, about whose joy is being made complete in this being written whether it's John's or the reader's, whether it's ours or yours. Uh, I think it doesn't matter too much because actually both of those things are true. Uh, There's joy for both parties in their being in fellowship with Christ together. There's joy for John uh, as he shares this with them. There's joy for those who read it uh, as they experience that as well. So his point in this opening section of his letter, unusual as it is, is to establish that Jesus really is the eternal Son of God. He's the eternal Son of God because he's been with God from the beginning. And he wants to establish his own authority as a witness to to that, to who Jesus is. He wants them to know that Jesus is God and that these words of Scripture, words that he's written, are reliable 
because they are from those who are witnesses. Now, in some ways that seems really obvious to us, doesn't it? We know. We know Jesus is God. We know the scripture is reliable. But these are the very things that our culture will not accept. Uh, And they are the things that those who've left the church, as we'll see in chapter 2 next week, want to undermine. If Jesus is God and the scriptures have authority, that has implications for us uh, and for the world that we live in that increasingly those around us don't like. When we come to verse 5, John begins to get to the heart of what he wants to say to his readers. He starts this section uh, with a kind of a summary. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. That's a stark binary that John uses frequently and that we don't like. Light and darkness cannot coexist. You can't have both together. Light was the first thing that God created back in the beginning of Genesis. It's the existence of light that actually makes darkness what it is. The separation of light and darkness in creation is continued through the whole unfolding story of the Bible. God is is light uh, and his people are the light of the world. And John's Gospel records Jesus' claim that he was the light of the world. It is one of the ways that he claims to actually be God. And this is part, I think, of what John's picking up here uh, as he moves from reminding um, the readers about the truth about Jesus to exhorting them to continue in the light. Um, When we look at light in John's Gospel, one of the implications... Um, of God being light and the opposite of darkness is that it's he who actually defines the moral standard of human life. There's something instinctive about light being good uh, and darkness being evil and that theme too goes throughout scripture. But light is good because God is light so he gets to decide what good and evil are. Having established that um, God, uh, sorry, having established Jesus then as the eternal Son of God and Himself as a reliable witness, John then makes five conditional statements that flow from what He's already said. So He makes five statements now in verses six to ten uh, that begin with "if." There are two pairs that are contrasting, uh, and then one that acts as a summary. You can see them uh, in your Bible. So the first two are in verses 6 and 7. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. And then in contrast with that, uh, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, walking is an Old Testament idiom that speaks uh, of a way of life. In Genesis 5.24, we read that Enoch walked with God. That means he lived in the way that God wanted. Uh, Or in Psalm 1, blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked. And so walking in the darkness means a way of living that's contrary to what God wants. 
This verse tells us that we cannot claim that we're in fellowship with God and live in ways that are not right. Verse 7 expresses it the other way around and explains how it's possible for us uh, to be right with God. It says, If we walk in the light and are purified by Jesus' blood and have fellowship with each other, uh, as oh no, <laughs> got, mixed, got myself mixed up there. Um, if we walk in the light and we are purified by Jesus' blood, we have fellowship with each other and if we have fellowship with him. We cannot walk in the light or live in a way that pleases God by our own doing, but only by Jesus' blood that cleanses us. John then builds on that and reinforces it in the next couple of verses. Uh, In verse 8 and 9 he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But on the other hand, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us uh, from all unrighteousness. In verse 10 uh, we get the summary If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. This is the third time he said, if we claim. If we claim to have fellowship with him, if we claim to be without sin, if we claim we we have not sinned. If we make these sort of claims, our words say what cannot be because it is not possible for us to be without sin. God alone is light and without him we're in darkness. But he hasn't left us there. In verse 8 it said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The world around us is broken by sin, is it not? We are in a mess and we can't get ourselves out of it. But Jesus' blood, his death and resurrection have atoned and made the payment for our sin. Through it we can be right with God in fellowship with him if we confess our sins and turn to him. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 sort of finish this section and recap what he said in verse 7 and really fill out how it is that God forgives us. He says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world. This if isn't really a question. He's already reminded them that they will sin. But the good news for them and for us is that we have an advocate. He intercedes for us and is the atoning sacrifice for us. In our culture, talking about sin and suggesting that people are sinful, I think is really a no-go zone. Uh, Just yesterday... Uh, I saw this on Facebook, that great oracle of our time. Sometimes I wake up and have to remind myself there is nothing wrong with me. I have patterns to unlearn, new behaviours to embody and wounds to heal, but there is nothing wrong with the core of me and who I am. I am unlearning generations of harm and remembering love. It takes time. 
Uh, if your Facebook feed's anything like mine, it's probably full of stuff like that. Uh, there's something very appealing about that, isn't there? I'm not too bad. Uh, I'm a product of my environment. But left to myself or without such and such, I would have been fine. We live in a culture that at the same time wants to point out all our flaws and tell us that we're fundamentally good. Apart from those few people who are fundamentally bad and want to oppress the people who are good. Our culture, the world around us, sees the brokenness that we live in but it won't accept that the reason for the brokenness is sin. It's not just the sin of the really bad people, like the world leaders who invade other countries, or governments that don't care about poor people, or those who oppress women. Those things are truly evil. But the brokenness of this world is because of my sin, and yours. It's because of our rejection of God. If we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is hard for us to hear. It's unpalatable uh, and it's unpopular. But dear sisters, the world around us, our family and our friends who don't know Jesus, don't actually need us to tell them that they're good and that they're fine as they are and that there's nothing wrong with them apart from those who would oppress them. They need us to tell them that all of us who sin have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the only one who is righteous. There is no better news than that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the light and that you have sent your son Jesus into this dark world, that you're an advocate for us and that You have cleansed us and made us right with you. Thank you that you continue to make us right with you and that you love us as your children. Please help us to be confident of your love for us and to share that with others. In Jesus' name, amen.